A good afternoon from me. Why don't we pick up our study in the book of Daniel? If you have a Bible or Bible device, it'll be very handy for you to have it in your hand as we're going along this afternoon. And as you're getting that ready, so far in our study of the book of Daniel, we've been given some real food for thought and prayerful reflection. I'm grateful for each of our sermons so far. And if you've missed any of the talks, I'd really strongly encourage you to go and get them on our website. Go and listen again, www.kingdomvineyard.com, and there's a page called Listen. Uh, I just want to hark back this afternoon to one point from the talks gone past uh, before picking up the story so far, which is something that Toby shared with us in the introduction to our book. He told us that even the name of the book, Daniel, means God is my judge. Not any earthly power or way of living. God is the one who I will live right before. That undistracted, uncompromised focus on God as the one whose judgment on my life really matters is a key to our passage today as well. Last week, uh, when I was off at a worship retreat, which was lovely, thanks for asking, Morag shared the first half of this afternoon's story and gave a really helpful, practical look at how God speaks to us prophetically. I enjoyed listening to that online. To pick up our story today, would you turn, if you haven't already, to Daniel chapter 4 in your Bibles? And as Ben comes and stands next to me in preparation to read, um, I'm going to give you a brief recap in verses 1 to 27. Ben, you can stand there and look handsome. Great. One out of two. Good. Daniel 4. <laughs> it's a talk about humility. It's right. Lean into it. It's great. Uh, ben reminded me today that England beat Wales in the rugby yesterday. So, um, <laughs> Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar once again has a dream that he knows is from God. He again consults his spiritual guides, who are again useless. And he again turns to Daniel, who again, thanks to God speaking to him, is able to explain it. In verses 10 and 12, the dream that King Neb has is of an enormous tree that touched the sky and was visible to the ends of the earth. Both of those were things that were said of the empire of Babylon, that their buildings touched the sky, the empire was visible to the ends of the earth. So there's a hint in the dream there. This tree was beautiful and it was a home to animals who came to live in it. Verse 13 and 14, but then an angel of God came from heaven and ordered the tree to be cut down and its branches, beautiful leaves and tasty fruit stripped away from it, leaving just a stump. And that stump we see in 15 and 16, that stump would have his mind changed from that of a man and given that of an animal. So that the living, verse 17, may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of people. So this stump, this tree, was Nebuchadnezzar, emperor of Babylon. And the Lord wants to teach him who actually is the Most High. Daniel nervously has to tell the murderous and maniacal King Neb that this was God warning him, Acknowledge that God is most high, not you, or God will step in much more dramatically and make sure that you realize that God is God and you need to live God's way. Verses 26 and 27 have Daniel finishing by advising, imploring King Neb to repent, do right, 
and maybe God will change his mind about the drastic action he has planned to correct you. So, Ben, why don't you read for us today's passage? Uh, We'll pick up the story starting at verse 28 and find out. Maybe King Neb made the right decision and manages to avoid all of this happening to him. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Drastically improved the visuals up here whilst you were stood here, friend. A pretty dramatic intervention from God, then. And... That last line, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I think there's a big takeaway for us in that line for this message. And I think that that message, those who walk in pride, God is able to humble, is at the same time comforting and challenging. That God is God and we are not. That Despite the stuff going on in the world, no matter how intimidating or scary it is, do you know what? Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Thank you, Lord. And also, 
as a warning, just occasionally do I? Hang on a second. How, how's my heart? Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. Comforting and challenging. And so my talk for this afternoon can be titled Pride and Perspective, The Humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar, if you're the sort who likes a title. And I think that our passage is a story that challenges us to reset our focus off ourselves and onto God. I've got three sections this afternoon. We're going to firstly take a closer look at the passage. Secondly, we're going to take a look at how and why God steps in to humble us. And then thirdly, a little bit of advice for how to respond when we realize that our perspective is off. So let's begin by diving back into that passage again. Twelve months have passed between the warning dream that God gave Neb about his pride and in verse 30, we hear Nebuchadnezzar musing on his greatness. He said, and Ben read this with great emphasis, is this not the great Babylon I have built as my royal, or as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? There's a lot of me, me, me in there, isn't there? It reminds me, I don't, you might not have seen this, but uh, have you seen, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Bart, as a toddler, is driving Marge absolutely up the wall. He's got a saucepan on his head, a frying pan in one hand and a big metal spoon, and he's stomping around the house going, I am so great. I, just me? Okay, cool. Oh, there's a nod. Thank you for that nod. Great. I am so great. Leapt to mind when I saw this. Um, I was about to make a joke about me wandering around the house and, uh, and that being Rachel's experience, but she's already looking at me as if that's true. And not just in this verse, but also in the preceding chapters, King Neb and the young Bart Simpson have a few things in common. Remember only last chapter, this guy, King Neb, is the one who made the whole empire play the game of musical bow to the golden statue of me. And those who refused to play the game got thrown into a fiery furnace. I am so great. Here, King Neb looks out on the city that is at the center of the known world full of the treasures of the kingdoms he's conquered, and he feels powerful, feels glorious, feels untouchable. And even more than that, he feels that he got there himself in his own strength. He doesn't owe anybody anything, and nobody can compare with him. I am so great. Except that in the dream that he'd had 12 months before, that's in the first half of Daniel chapter 4 that we skipped earlier. God was giving Neb a stark and terrifying warning that unless Nebuchadnezzar realizes and declares that God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes, at the bottom there, then God would give King Neb a serious perspective correction from pride to humiliation. Also, I haven't quite got the time for this aside, but there's an extra pointedness. Oh, it's dead good. An extra pointedness to that humiliation. God is really smart. So a few times in Daniel, King Neb is praised as such a mighty king that he even rules over the wild animals. We see that in Daniel 2, 38. Brilliant. Uh, he has made you ruler over them all, even the wild animals. It appears in the book of Jeremiah, too, where God warns his people Israel that their corrupt worship will lead to God giving them over so completely to Nebuchadnezzar that I will give him, I'll even give him control 
over the wild animals. One of the things that was a title, kind of a status mark of King Neb was not just I'm king of all these people, but I rule even the wild animals. So that mighty King Neb being humbled, not just in status from king to average bloke, but to live like a wild animal. You know, God's done a really smart one here. Anyway, back to our passage. That's what happens. In verse 30, we hear King Neb saying, I am so great. Is this not the great Babylon I've built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, he said that out loud, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven, this is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. A voice came from heaven. So he's praising himself out loud, audacious, and then there's an audible voice that says, and I paraphrase, nope. And God's forewarned consequences of Neb's pride kick in. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. That is, in verses 31 and 32, his royal authority taken from him, he's driven away from the people, lives with the wild animals, eating grass like cattle. In 33, we see his body was drenched with the dew of heaven, and his hair grew drenched with the dew of heaven. That just sounds much less comfortable than, you know, wearing clothes and being dry. His hair growing long like the feathers of an eagle. I just think that's a poetic way of saying really wrong and probably not that neat. His, ha- his nails like the claws of a bird. Again, long, messy. All in all, King Neb is not in a good way. And I reckon people were talking about him. And not in the what a glorious king he is sort of way. But in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar tells us that at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. So King Neb is reduced to, well, clearly not in his right mind, lifts his gaze looks not at himself, but looks to God. And God is pleased to restore to him his right mind. This is the turning point in God's interaction with Nebuchadnezzar here. Neb raises his eyes towards heaven. The guy whose eyes were fixed firmly on himself and his own stuff, and in fact the guy who wanted the whole world to look at a golden version of him and bow to it, that guy finally looks to God, and his sanity is restored. He gets clarity, perspective, a crucial reset. And I don't know how it's formatted in your Bibles, but when Neb goes on to praise God, there's this lovely little poem recognizing God's power and giving God glory. I'm going to use the New Living Translation as I read this to you because I think it puts it really well. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. This is the little poem bit. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven, and among the people of the earth, 
No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? He's giving God quite a lot of glory there. And I just want to zoom in on that first line about God's eternal rule or lordship or dominion, your Bibles might have it translated, and God's unendable kingdom, because it shows up a few times in the book of Daniel. It was in Neb's intro to chapter four. How great are his signs, how many are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion, lordship, rule, endures from generation to generation. And this phrase appears, that's great. I think that might be the church office. Wonderful. This phrase about the kingdom being an eternal kingdom and dominion enduring from generation to generation, that appears a few times in Daniel in chapter 6, verse 26, and in 7, verse 14, and actually in that one, it's about Jesus, which is exciting. More on that at a later date. This phrase, though, about God is a key message of the book of Dan E.L. No matter how great we think we are, God is God. His rule will outlast ours. His kingdom that he is building is greater than ours. Whether we're talking the kingdom of empires, nations and armies, kingdom of culture, kingdoms that any group or cause or idea that we can align with or represent, including churches, all of our flags and our kingdoms, all of our idols must bow to the true God, to his kingdom, to his presence in our lives and his rule over our lives. The greatest empire of the time was able to be humbled by God if he wanted to. The most powerful leader in the world was able to be humbled by God if he wanted to. I find that rather reassuring, especially with the events of this last week. Our human pride is able to be put into perspective by a God who can do as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. And Lord, please, would you show all the world's leaders that you are God. Show them your heart for the hurting and the impressed and turn them toward faithful obedience of you as Lord. Amen. Why don't we turn to focus of part two. Um, Why and how does God step in and humble us? Sorry, that's not quite the end. It's just the end of part one. The amen might have thrown you. So why? Why does God do this to Nebuchadnezzar? Is this just punishment for being murderous and unpredictable? And if so... Where's the line? How do we avoid this humiliate fate? And also, what is so wrong with being proud? What's so wrong with being, say, self-sufficient, self-reliant? Aren't we encouraged to believe in ourselves? Here's the thing. Self-sufficiency and a focus on ourselves kills relationship with God. Yes, God wants us to grow in our abilities, but he wants us to keep stepping out in faith with him not stepping out from him. Relationship with God is meant to 
underpin and go alongside everything we do. Life is meant to be with, lived with God, not just for God. How many churches get in how much trouble by doing things for God without checking whether they're doing things with God? And all of that is not to say that God wants you to live under a cloud of, I am rubbish, I'm no good. That would be to miss the point in the other direction. That's still a focus on ourselves. God doesn't want us to look at ourselves arrogantly as brilliantly independent, nor do I think he wants us to look at ourselves despairingly as bad or useless. I think he wants us to look at him. Whenever our view turns in to focus primarily on ourselves, whether we're saying, I am so great or I am so awful, we've broken off our eye contact with the God who loves us and wants us to see what he says about us. It's like a parent saying to their toddler, stop screaming for a minute. Stop fighting. Just put the toy down and look at me. See, it's okay. I'm here. You're okay. I think the Lord so often wants to interrupt our prideful or panicked spiraling and reset our perspective on him for our own good. He doesn't need our praise but him resetting our focus on him is a gift. It's because he loves us. Even if I feel humbled by having to put down the very important things that I'm holding. And the trouble is that we are a fairly fickle people. We're open to distractions and destructions that we can be drawn to alongside God. You know, I'll just add that in. Or instead of him, but only for a bit. The world, especially because the world's cultures are significantly ruled by the enemy, the world is full of things that draw us away from relationship with God. To the point where, in the book of James, God sternly challenges us. Are you ready? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us? That is, I think, the life that he gave us. He wants that relationship. But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. This is in James 4. That's also a quote of Proverbs 3. God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Come near to God and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts didn't realize Jesse had that in the set and he didn't know I was going to say it. So I think this might be the Lord. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. If this seems a bit harsh, a bit, all right, James, hold on. Then just take a note of the target of the sternness. Take a note of what's in view here. God wants relationship with us. He's not rejecting us. In fact, it's his desire for an unpolluted relationship with us. That is why he so strongly wants us to reject the counterfeits 
that we are constantly tempted to worship with or instead of him. Wash your hands of the things that take you away from God. Don't be double-minded or divided anymore. Purify your hearts to focus on and be with God. Anything that can increase our pride in our own achievements, our own stuff, our own sense of importance, our own sense of responsibilities or duties even, is a form of pride that can become a block to our meeting with God. Even in preparing this talk for this afternoon, uh, I was thinking, do I have any stories to illustrate this point? Surely I am a wretch. I mean, I think I must be a wretch. I mean, I'm doing pretty well, though. You know, I'm quite holy. Do I have a story? And I was struggling to find one. In fact, I was really struggling to get this talk lined up to make sense at all. All the bits were there. I think the passage is great. But it just wasn't coming together. And, you know, jokes aside, actually, I feel the responsibility of preaching to you uh, really quite seriously. I think the, the gift of being able to preach to you as well as I can as, as part of being a pastor that I love and, and take as a serious burden. The gift of bringing what God is saying through this time, uh, at this time, through this passage to this people, as Toby taught me in 2008. I feel a strong sense of responsibility and inadequacy. I couldn't fix it. I couldn't get this talk to actually have any structure whatsoever. And in the end, I just ran out of time and instead switched to leading the worship night yesterday evening, which was lovely, by the way. And then, having pushed this from my mind completely and focused on God and worshipped, guess what? During the second song, God just dropped an outline into my mind. One, two, three, ABC, nice and easy. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Okay, passage, how God works, how we respond. Yeah, that, yeah, great. The irony of God showing me that I couldn't do this in my own strength, but that when I put it down and lifted my eyes to him in worship, he then provided for me the thing I'd been anguishing over on a sermon about pride. God has a sense of humor, and I think I'm quite often his joke. Friends, I need, that's only a little thing, really. I'm sure I've messed up far worse than that. Um, I need the reminder. I can't do life in my own strength, and hey, I get to read the Bible and talk about it for a living. If I need that, I reckon most of us could do with the reminder of what the difference is between life and our own strength and life lifting our eyes to God. I'm convinced that God's motivations towards Nebuchadnezzar were loving. That the humiliation that King Neb went through was a gift to help him realize that he needed to surrender his pride and change his perspective. I think it was worth the pain and the awkwardness for the reward of the reset on God. And Neb himself seems to have thought so. He even says it in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right. And all his ways, including turning me into animal king, apparently, are just. I don't know if I'd have had that grace, really. I might have had some sort of, Lord, what was that for? That wasn't nice. I'm all dewy. Why does God humble us? In conclusion, 
I think because we need the reminder that we need him. It's good for us to be brought back to the place of, ah, yeah, sorry, God. Shall we go together from here? It's more loving than the alternative of letting us wander off without him going with us. Again, what parent would let their child wander off out of sight near a busy road without shouting, come back here now? Even if the child, not realizing the danger, is frustrated that they have to stop running for a moment. And I said, how? How does God humble us? This is a simple answer. However, he lovingly judges will best get our attention. Neb needed brute force and a dewy, hairy time. But God isn't vindictive. He isn't looking to score points against us or Nebuchadnezzar, I don't think. It's just not his heart. His intention in humbling us is only to get our attention, to stop our distracted obsession and to have us realize that we need him, to ensure that we choose the relationship with him that is best for us, that he made us for. Lastly and briefly, part three, how do we respond when God humbles us? In today's story, borrowing from the last verse of last week's passage, that's verse 27, Daniel gave direct advice to King Neb about what to do when God warned that a humbling was coming. So that seems a pretty good place to look, I reckon. Again, the New Living Translation puts this really nice and clearly. I think, King Nebuchadnezzar, please, Daniel says, accept my advice. Stop sinning. Do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. Two parts to that advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Or repent. Turn to God. And part two, break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor or stop your selfishness and your evil ways and show kindness to those in need. Two great pieces of advice. In fact, such great pieces of advice that it was reminiscent of something and it maps pretty neatly, I realized, onto the ultimate two-part guide of how to live. As Jesus put it, when asked the most important rule for life, he replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love people. If we have a dawning realization that we've put too much focus on ourselves, be it our own I am so greatness, or our own needs or responsibilities, then turning our focus and our hearts to God and then being kind to other people are excellent practical responses and will steer us out of danger, I am certain of it. And one flows from the other. The better we know God, the closer we are to him, the more we are open to his leading, the more overflowing love we have for those around us, especially those in need. It's quite a beautiful design, really. So as we wrap up, really, this time, what can we learn from the humbling of King Neb? That God is God and is able to intervene and fix our perspective and our pride.
that it is his kindness, his gift to us, when he changes our perspective. That we were designed to live with him, with our eyes fixed on him. And that when our focus shifts, we need it to be reset. Pride needs perspective. And I think there are a couple of invitations for us as we move towards prayer ministry now from this passage. The first is an invitation to submit again to God. I think there may be some of us who are holding on to things that we just don't quite trust God with, we don't quite want to let go of, that we're saying, no, this, no you can't have this. This is mine. You can't have this. And I think the invitation is to come to him with submission, to say, okay, God, you are God, and I am not. And to call back to the verse that the Lord gave this church in January 21, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. That's invitation one. Invitation two is like it. It's an invitation to, to quote Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he'll have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. Your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. Can I invite you to stand? And my prayer is going to be that whatever has been occupying our worship and whatever has been occupying our worries, I'm going to invite us to turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face and have the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us? Would you help us to see you? And in any places where our worship of you has become diminished, compromised, would you lovingly nudge us Show us that. Speak to us about how you want to restore our worship of you. And in any area, Lord, where our worries have consumed us and crowded out our worship of you, Lord, would you come and speak to us? Would you minister to us with your loving presence and bring healing? For any of us who are clutching onto something and just don't feel like we can surrender it. We just don't feel like we can trust you with it. Whether it's something we're proud of or something that's painful, Lord, would you meet us in your grace, in your gentleness? Show us how much you love us, please, Jesus.